This episode of Checks and Balance is supported by IDA Ireland. With the highest share of STEM graduates per capita in the EU, IDA Ireland can help source the skills you need to internationalise and thrive. Visit idaireland.com to learn more. The Economist. A quick announcement before we get started with today's episode. Economist Podcasts Plus, our new subscriber service, is here. Whether you're one of the thousands to have signed up in the past weeks or you're a long-time subscriber, you'll need to link your podcast app to your Economist subscription in order to listen to everything we have on offer. We'll have more details on how to set up your account later in the show. If you're not yet a subscriber, it's not too late to join us. To sign up now for half price, click the link in the show notes or just search online for Economist Podcasts. When it came time for George Washington to retire, he spent months working on his farewell address. With drafts sent back and forth with Alexander Hamilton, in the end, the goodbye was 6,000 words long. It's still remembered, among other things, for what it says about other countries. Washington advised his successors to steer clear of permanent alliances and avoid favors or preferences in trade. The strain of isolationism in the farewell address long outlived the first president. But, unlike his inaugural addresses, he didn't deliver it to Congress or other officials. Instead, he simply sent it to a newspaper. One of the defining speeches of American foreign policy was never actually given. I'm John Prudeau, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how did the Republican Party go from isolationism to internationalism and then back again? In his own address to the American people last week, President Joe Biden made the case for internationalism, saying American leadership holds the world together. But across the aisle, the consensus is now very different. On foreign policy, trade and immigration, the Republican Party is campaigning for America to push the world away. How did isolationism become an organizing principle for today's Republican Party? And what does that mean for America's foreign policy? With me this week to discuss isolationism in the Republican Party are Idris Kaloun in Washington, D.C. and Charlotte Howard in New York. Idris, we have a speaker. You have a speaker in Washington, D.C. It's been a long time coming, but Mike Johnson now has what's arguably the worst job in Washington. Yes, he got the job on Wednesday. Tom Emmer had a chance of being speaker that lasted about as long as some lunch specials in the city, after which Mike Johnson became the nominee. And I think Republicans, out of a feeling of exhaustion, have finally put him as speaker. And now everyone is going through and examining what his record is. And Susan Collins memorably said that she didn't know very much about him, but she would Google him to figure out how they would work together. So I'm sure we'll have an eventful few months ahead of us. I, too, need to learn more about him. What I do know so far is that in the past he has opposed additional assistance to Ukraine, though that may soften a bit now that he actually has to take responsibility for his votes. Also, when it comes to abortion, he was a co-sponsor of a bill to bar any abortion on a national level once a fetal heartbeat is detected, which is usually around six weeks. So there we go. And Idris, one of the first tests of his speakership will be whether the Republican Party can get it together to keep the government open, but also whether the Republican Party wants to give military aid to Ukraine. We know that Israel has strong bipartisan support in America. It's almost a domestic politics issue in the US. But Ukraine is different and reflective of the rise of a strain of isolationism in the Republican Party, which you've been researching and you've written a big piece in this week's issue about. So this episode of the podcast really is going to be piloted by you and your research and your writing. Why did you get so into this subject and why now? Well, I found it so interesting because we think of Donald Trump as a break from 
the Republican Party of 20 years ago, the Republican Party of George W. Bush, of Ronald Reagan. And what was interesting to me was if you expanded the scope of analysis from not just the last 60 years, but the entire history of the Republican Party, what you see is that the Republican Party today is actually returning to a GOP that existed in the 1920s in a lot of ways. So back then, there was a lot of opposition to immigration. There was a lot of enthusiasm for protectionism, just as there is now. And there was, most importantly, I think for this episode, a lot of isolationism sentiment within the Republican Party. And so if you take the long view, the 60-year period between Eisenhower and Trump really looks like a bit of an aberration in the long arc of Republican history. So it's an interesting intellectual history to walk through. And for this piece, you read every Republican Party platform going right back to the beginning of the party. And you also spoke to a bunch of conservative intellectuals. Who are we going to hear from first? We're going to start with Kevin Roberts, who is the president of the Heritage Foundation. And Heritage is interesting It was so closely identified with Ronald Reagan when he became president, and now it's become closely identified with Donald Trump. And the shift within the Republican Party is very apparent if you look at the shift that's happened within Heritage itself. If you contrast its opinions and papers and research from today with those of 20 years ago, it perfectly epitomizes the change within the Republican Party. So I wanted to talk to him about the ebb and flow of these ideas. In the same way that Heritage in the late 1970s was saying, Guys, something has changed since the Roe versus Wade decision. Something has changed since the utter failure of the United States in Vietnam, in spite of all of the heroism of our troops there. In the 2020s, we're saying, guys, something has changed. And what has changed is that the United States is weaker economically. We have some very worrisome trends domestically. I often put at the top of the list a decline in the marriage rate and the birth rate. And these are by demographic terms, true existential threats to American civilization. And while there are still plenty of evil people in the world, Vladimir Putin among them, we have to be that much more realistic about how extensive America's intervention in the world can be. And therefore, we really need to be asking two questions. First, as it relates to national security, what's in the best interest of the American person first? And secondly, Who really are our biggest threats? And by every measure that we can come up with at Heritage, other than the number of nuclear warheads, the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping are a heck of a lot more threatening to the United States than is Russia and Vladimir Putin. What do you think brought about that 60-year period, I would date in presidential terms, from Eisenhower up until the Trump presidency in terms of this move towards open trade towards a more international presence. What in your mind caused that shift? And what caused, I guess, starting in 2016, that shift back? Yeah, I think most importantly is America not just winning World War II with its allies, but emerging as the global hegemon. And clearly that was the case, even with the Soviet Union sending Sputnik into space, becoming a nuclear power, certainly challenging the United States hegemony. All of that to say, the United States in the late 40s and 50s had to reckon with this new realization, what America said basically the world had to do. And I think that therefore, one of the silver linings to that hubris was that the United States believed that rather than always exercise military power, it would be better off exercising economic power which led to what, in most respects, intellectually, was a very appropriate embracing of free market, free trade ideology. And so that makes perfect sense, given the circumstances in the world during that 60-year period. Therefore, to my way of thinking, it makes perfect sense that given that those circumstances have changed, I think the United States is no longer the only global power. And then secondly, And this is what we try to drive home at Heritage. What has changed is that the United States is weaker economically. Individual Americans would say that as well. We might measure that in a lot of ways. One is that in 1983, the debt-to-GDP ratio was 37%. Today, I think the most up-to-date estimates are 120 125%. So that, in terms of macro-level data, indicates the United States simply doesn't have the economic power to be interventionist for sure in its foreign policy. And how does a turn towards tariffs, a turn inwards, perhaps away from thinking of American as the neoconservatives did as 
a kind of policeman or a kind of promoter of democracy and freedom abroad? How does that help that set of problems that you just identified? Well, because it's expensive to be engaged in neoconservative adventurism. We know that from the Iraq war. We know that from the intervention in Afghanistan, and perhaps the first phase of that was justified. It really is a matter of material resources. But if our founders were here, the men at the Constitutional Convention, they would remind us that it's also very difficult to muster the soft resources, the political capital, to sustain that kind of expense internationally when there are such problems domestically. And heritage has obviously been one of the institutions that has been most important in encouraging Republicans to oppose additional funding to Ukraine. And a lot of the reasoning has been exactly what you laid out, that America has a bigger threat in China and the CCP. I wonder whether or not the same calculation applies to America's friendship and alliance with Israel at the moment, or how you think about the three in tandem. Yeah, we think more about the three in tandem. So on Israel in particular, it's just such a slam dunk in our mind because of Israel's close alliance with the United States. The difference between Israel and Ukraine is that Israel doesn't ask for a lot of help. In fact, Israel insists on being able to do almost all of that itself. Secondly, Israel has no neighbors who will help it, to say the least, right? Whereas Ukraine, thank God, has plenty. And after Israel and after Britain, if hypothetically, God forbid, Britain were invaded or threatened, the next most important country on the planet for the United States is Taiwan, both because of the Taiwanese themselves, the significance of some sectors of the Taiwanese economy to America thinking about chips in particular, a huge national security risk for us, but also because their adversary is our number one adversary, the Chinese Communist Party. What Heritage is saying is you might be able to help, to some extent, all three of those countries, Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, but you're not going to be able to help all three if you continue to go about this funding of Ukraine at the extent that you have. I'm not quite sure whether to be reassured or alarmed that Kevin Roberts makes such an exception for Britain, but that was really interesting, Idris. Charlotte, terms like internationalism and isolationism can often sound a bit abstract. So should we just begin by setting terms? What we're talking about, the sort of strain of isolationism in the Republican Party, contrasts quite clearly and particularly this week with what President Biden thinks America's role in the world is and should be, right? Yeah, I think that's right generally with maybe one or two qualifications, I would say. Generally, President Biden clearly is of the view that America is strengthened by creating a latticework of cooperation, to use one of their phrases, but by cooperating with allies and updating the nature of those alliances to react to a changing world. But when I think about isolationism, I guess I think about it in three areas. One has to do with borders and immigration policy, who can come in, how open America is to immigrants. The other is in economic policy, and then the third is in foreign policy. So on foreign policy, President Biden is very, very clearly making a case that's in contrast to what many Republicans would advise. And he argues that this is an inflection point, a pivotal moment. I hate the use of the word moment by politicians. I think they use it all the time to try to elevate out of the chaos and pinpoint a moment in time in which people have agency and the power to shape the future. But I do think that, as we did in our leader pages this week, referring to this moment as an important one is correct, that there is a debate taking place between the two parties that articulates a fundamentally different vision of what American power in the world means. And that is going to play out definitely in next year's election, but is hugely important now as Washington considers the level of support for Ukraine going forward as we think about America's involvement in the Middle East. It just is actually a critical time, a critical moment for defining American standing. And Idris, that period you talked about with Kevin Roberts from roughly Eisenhower 
to Donald Trump. During that period, the Republican Party had a pretty optimistic view of what American power in the world could achieve and quite an idealistic view as well and also not a view that was really bound by a sense that there were kind of economic limits to what America could do. Yeah, I think that the presence of the Soviet Union was a real glue between what we thought of as republicanism, both the idea that America was a beacon of light, a city on the hill, as you know Reagan talked about, up until the Bush era, this idea that America could export democracy and remake whole societies in our image, which obviously turned out to be a hubristic failure that set up, I think, the Trumpian counter-revolution. But the other, I think, point was that because America was fighting against communism, the linkage between free market economics and this more aggressive and assertive foreign policy became quite strong. You know, the two economic thinkers who were probably most influential on the GOP were Friedrich Hayek, who in The Road to Serfdom argued that central planning would inevitably lead to a collapse of political freedom, and Milton Friedman, who, among other arguments, said that, you know, economic freedom itself begets political freedom. And that was a consensus view that both parties adopted. That's why when people critique America's original position towards China, you know, allowing China to join the WTO, they often pillory the statements that were made by allowing China into the WTO by integrating it into the world economy that it would inevitably democratize. There is this kind of idea at the post end of history that this would all happen. And of course, that's turned out to be incorrect. So I think that both the failures of Iraq and Afghanistan, the challenge from the great financial crisis onwards, and the presence of these alternative institutions means that this linkage no longer is as strong as it once was. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And the only other thing I would add to the list is a skepticism of free market policies within the United States and the effect that that had on ordinary Americans. And you see that reflected in economic protectionism that began with Donald Trump. I mean, in 2018, Trump self-identified as a tariff man, and he imposed these tariffs that had some traction politically, but are just objectively very bad policy with costs borne by not only Americans, but in a regressive way, costs borne by lower-income Americans. And going forward, what he wants to do is amp up that type of policy. He's proposed an across-the-board 10% tariff on all imports, regardless of where they come from, which is really quite remarkable. And his idea is that conveys strength. The obvious economist counter to that is that it poses a huge cost on consumers without disentangling from global supply chains in the way that he'd intend. The economic protectionism is the one area where I think there is more similarity between Republicans and Democrats than you see on immigration or on foreign policy. But that economic switch that Trump helped to propel is very well underway. And so, Idris, Donald Trump wins the Republican nomination in 2016 and then the presidency. And there's a lot of debate at the time about how ideological he really is, whether the Republican Party is going to change in his image or whether it will retain its sort of Reaganite roots. What changes between 2016 and 2023? I think you've seen a radical change in what the Republican Party stands for and argues in terms of its rejection of free trade and embrace of tariffs, which the Biden administration has basically kept wholesale. So it's catalyzed not just its own party's shift in thinking, but also one on the other side of the aisle as well. And you've seen this intense skepticism of America's alliances now. There are some continuities, obviously, as we see with Israel, but in many, many other ways, the party has totally changed. It's adopted a much more hawkish line towards China, which has been adopted by the Democrats as well. But there is a genuine reluctance to commit American troops. And I think since Trump has been at the helm of the party since 2016, we've seen that these ideas have sunk in, right? There's a professional core that worked in the Trump White House that is preparing to return to a second Trump White House. We see in Congress that there's been shifts. You know, the Senate moves a lot slower, so that's why the internationalist faction there that is more supportive of funding for Ukraine is still there and is still powerful. But in the House, there's been complete upheaval, right? That's why Mike Johnson, who was first elected to Congress with Donald Trump, has voted against additional aid to Ukraine several times this year. And you'll see that attrition occur within the Senate as well. So the longer that 
people with ideas stay at the helm of their party, the more it becomes institutionalized. And that's something that you see across the long arc of American history as well. Yes, and it's hard to overstate what a big change this is for the Republican Party after pretty much 50 years of internationalism when it comes to foreign policy, to trade, and also to immigration. In a moment, we'll go back 70 years to that moment when the Republican Party embraced internationalism. But first, Economist Podcast Plus, our new subscriber service, is here. If you haven't signed up yet, you still have a few more days to take advantage of our half-price offer. It's been extended until the end of October. If you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you'll need to link your Economist subscription to your podcast app to unlock all of our shows. It's actually pretty easy. I linked my account earlier this week. I listened to our podcast on Apple, and once I'd downloaded the new Apple operating system, it was actually really straightforward. Charlotte, would you be kind enough to talk our listeners through the process? Yes, I would be happy to. This is my new role as a QVC presenter. I don't know if that works for our international audience, but in America anyway, people sell things like laminated kitten statues on television. But in this case, I get to talk about Economist Podcast Plus, which is much better. Okay, so we have... An extra mini episode that we are publishing alongside our regular one, which is essentially a short welcome to Economist Podcast Plus. That episode you click on, or any previous episode of Checks and Balance, which will be behind a paywall, and you click on it and you enter your Economist subscription details when you're prompted to. Once you've done that, you're all set and you only need to do it once, and then you can listen to all of our shows. And if you don't use Apple or Spotify, there is an FAQ page in the show notes, and you can go there to learn how to access subscriber-only episodes on whatever your preferred podcast app is. Yeah, and if you're worried that you'll forget all of this, then just look out for an email which covers everything that Charlotte has just mentioned. There's also a helpful video to walk you through it all. You'll find that in the show notes too, or you can just Google Economist Podcasts. To keep listening without any interruptions, you'll want to go through the linking process before this Saturday, the 28th of October, when we'll publish our first episode of The Weekend Intelligence. You'll need to have your account set up to listen to that, as well as next week's episode of Checks and Balance, which will be the first one behind the paywall. And remember, there's still time to get access to all the shows on our award-winning network for half price, $24.50 for the whole year, or just $2 or pounds or euros a month. If you're still not completely convinced, then you can sign up for a one-month free trial instead. Either way, just click on the link in the show notes or search for Economist Podcasts. Uh, This is a morning newspaper story for a radio release at 6 p.m. I've asked Governor Sherman Adams of New Hampshire to enter General Eisenhower as a candidate for the presidency on the Republican ticket. It was an understated campaign launch. Senator Henry Cabot Lodge made the announcement on behalf of Dwight Eisenhower. It was just a few months before the New Hampshire primary, and it was mostly that, yes, he was actually running, and yes, he was actually a Republican. I have assured Governor Adams that General Eisenhower is in to the finish. General Eisenhower has personally assured me that he is a Republican. Eisenhower himself was still in Europe, leading NATO's forces. He wasn't particularly political. He hadn't even voted before. But the front-runner for the Republican nomination was Ohio Senator Robert Taft. I'm going to run because I believe I can conduct the only kind of campaign which will elect a Republican to office. Taft was a fierce conservative. He hated the New Deal and was staunchly isolationist. He opposed the creation of NATO and U.S. entry into the United Nations. Moderate Republicans pleaded with Eisenhower to run as a more centrist, more internationalist, and mostly more electable alternative. As of today, there is only one way in which an American can approach his relationships with any other country in the world, the enlightened self-interest of America. When Eisenhower did eventually start making speeches, foreign policy was central to his campaign. He pushed for internationalism, arguing for sending aid abroad, even though that was expensive. I admit those amounts are great, but here is the place where we should group them. We're talking about the security of the United States, the enlightened self-interest. Where is the best place to get our security? 
That is, a, that's the whole effort. His personal popularity helped bring his ideas into the mainstream of the party. Chicago, vibrant, every inch alive, youngest of the world's great cities, but already an old hand at national conventions, welcomes the GOP elephant and its big political circus. But the primary was close. The convention was contested. The party's 25th nominating convention arrives at a time of uncontrolled excitement and expectancy. The United States and the world keyed to the drama of the moment. Candidates and their issues... We In the end, vote jockeying and backroom wrangling got Eisenhower the nomination. For the first time, he stands before the American public as a civilian, seeking the highest political office in the land. After 40 years of distinguished army service, in which he was the architect of victory in World War II, he brings to the party of his choice a new leadership. That his nomination is a popular one is attested to by the acclaim from the floor. Ladies and gentlemen, you have summoned me on behalf of millions of your fellow Americans to lead a great crusade for freedom in America and freedom in the world. I know something of the solemn responsibility of leading a crusade. I have led one. It's hard to know whether the party preferred his foreign policy or just preferred him. The party's platform in 1952 reflected Eisenhower's internationalism. It supported expanding trade, pledged to use friendly influence in Western Europe, and blamed the Truman administration for abandoning Eastern Europe. Internationalism was now one of the party's core beliefs. We are now at a moment in history when, under God, this nation of ours has become the mightiest temporal power and the mightiest spiritual force on earth. The destiny of mankind, the making of a world that will be fit for our children to live in, hangs in the balance on what we say and what we accomplish in these months ahead. So Idris Eisenhower beats Robert Taft in that 1952 primary and thus really begins the Republican Party that we used to know and recognize that ran from sort of Eisenhower to George W. Bush. But there was, of course, a Republican Party a long time before that that in some ways was Trumpier in the sense that it was keener on isolationism. Could you give us a brief tour of that pre-Eisenhower history? Yeah, and like... We said at the beginning, the founding fathers were skeptical of foreign alliances and entanglements. They, they worried that that would strangle the new nation in its crib. And you saw also that before the two-party system emerged, there was consensus around what is called the American system. One of the key tenets of that was in addition to infrastructure spending, a very large protective tariff that protected American industries. It kept the economy from intermingling with the rest of the world all that much. That continued for much of the history of the Republican Party. If you read through the presidential platforms, quite a lot of it is spent critiquing Democrats for wanting to reduce the tariff rates from very high levels, making similar arguments to what you hear today about the need to protect American workers from foreign interference and foreign competition, the need to have strong domestic industries, and wide-scale immigration enabled by steamships really takes off at the start of the 20th century. And very quickly, there is a nativist counterreaction to that, which leads to, in the 1920s, the really slamming shut of America's doors to immigration, especially from Asia. And that would remain the case up until the 1960s as well. Yeah, I spent some time looking at Calvin Coolidge when I was writing about Republicans in business, because I found him to be kind of interesting on this. So if you look at the laws on immigration, Coolidge said America must remain American when he was signing the Johnson-Reed Act in 1924. On tariffs, also, he thought that the American market should be for the products of American workmen. In 1930, there was this tariff act that had a big bump of tariffs on 900 manufactured products, hundreds of agricultural products. And then the isolationism from the trauma of the First World War, I think, is kind of instructive because America's resistance to join the League of Nations more or less ensured its failure. And you could argue about what the cause was of its failure. But I think it's informative now because 
there's a degree to which American skepticism of international institutions becomes a self-reinforcing cycle, right? In which American skepticism that those institutions will be effective almost ensures that those institutions become less effective. And that's what I think is the big risk now. Idris, I think at The Economist, we tend to lean towards explanations of things in terms of big forces, you know, economic shifts, demography, that sort of thing. But reading your piece this week, I was really struck by just what a difference that Eisenhower election made in 1952, Eisenhower over Taft, and how that really completely changes the party. There are so many echoes of the pre-Eisenhower Republican Party in the Donald Trump Republican Party, not least the enthusiasm for America First foreign policy. Yes, that's right. There was an America First committee that advocated strenuously against America becoming involved in World War II. And its most prominent spokesperson was Charles Lindbergh, the famous aviator. You know, the America First committee seemed like it was done after the first bombs fell on Pearl Harbor. But to your point, you know, there is this great man theory of history that makes sense for biographers, but is certainly exaggerating and simplifying the course of events. But researching this piece made me wonder whether there was something more like a idiosyncratic theory of history, a kind of chaotic one, because, you know, it's sort of a fluke. So both Democrats and Republicans were incredibly keen to recruit Eisenhower to run at the top of their ticket. And he dithered on which party he actually wanted to be or whether or not he wanted to run at all. And ultimately, he decided to run on the Republican ticket because he thought that there needed to be a break with the Truman administration and because he genuinely disagreed with Robert Taft's ideas. And Taft was probably going to be the nominee had Eisenhower not entered. But the fact that Eisenhower did enter on the Republican ticket, the fact that he won, the fact that Taft then died a year later in 1953, meant that the entire orientation of the party shifted and shifted in a lasting way. And I think that that idiosyncratic theory might help explain our current moment as well, where Donald Trump's rise to the top of the Republican ticket and victory has a similar kind of fluky feel to it, right? Anyway, I think great men do change history, but I don't think that they're kind of divinely preordained. I think that there is a lot more chaos in the system than maybe biographers imagine. Yeah, the idea that Eisenhower might have been the Democratic nominee in 1952 is, I guess, one of the many what-ifs of American political history. Okay, we'll be back in a moment to bring things right up to the present day and ask what the Republican Party's isolationist turn means for the conflict in Israel and Gaza and also for America's support for Ukraine in its fight against Russia. Before we get there, I wanted to tell you about our new podcast, The Weekend Intelligence, the first episode of which comes out tomorrow. That episode is about how to live on the moon and why it's worth having a go at doing so. It features interviews with space architects, engineers, an astronaut, and it's really interesting and thought-provoking. The idea for the weekend intelligence is that it will be a home for long-form storytelling in Economist podcasts. And so the sorts of stories that might not make the news, but which we think are really, really interesting. So I hope you enjoy that. Do give it a listen. Did you ever imagine what it would look like to live on the moon? How would you breathe? Where would you sleep? Would you want a room with a view of Earth or the celestial heavens? Imagine sitting on a crater that is 20 kilometers wide and and you look down into the crater and you see nothing but darkness, okay? And above you, you see nothing but darkness and the stars. Science fiction is full of stories of people living out among the stars. But science fact is fast catching up. I'm Jessica Camila Gire, and for The Economist, I've been talking to people about a blueprint for a moon habitat. If I would compare it to something, I would compare it to some of the Mediterranean architecture you know. But then, of course, the space is, is a continuous curve, and it has this kind of very tall, almost Gothic arch. What I discovered was a vision for the evolution of humanity. You've gone beyond what you thought you were capable of. You've reached, you know, the outer edge of human's footprint on the universe. You're sort of staring out beyond, and, and yet weirdly you're at the lowest rung of a ladder that, 
that generations of people are going to climb as they leave Earth. I don't know, you mark a place in history. That's The Weekend Intelligence, coming this Saturday from The Economist. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. To get a sense of how the growing isolationism in the Republican Party is seen from abroad, I spoke to Edward Carr, our deputy editor. He wrote our cover leader this week, and he was also the author of the cover leader we were praising. I can't remember if it was last week's podcast or the one before. He writes a lot of The Economist's foreign policy leaders. I spoke to him on Wednesday when he was in Jerusalem. I asked him how America's response to the Israel-Gaza conflict has gone down there. My sense is that America's support for Israel has been very important, has been much appreciated. In particular, Biden's speech was very well pitched and was well received. And you have to remember that this is happening in a country that's been very divided about its own government. And so the sense of Biden stepping in and being able to see these things really mattered. I think Biden is playing something of a very wise game here, which is to show enormous sympathy for Israel in order to be in a position later on to urge restraint. Some of the Israelis I've spoken to think that that is already being voiced and it'll only get stronger. And Ed, in the cover leader you've written for this week, you set this up as, in a sense, another test of American power, along with Ukraine, possible threats to Taiwan, a few other things. And there's a phrase I wanted to ask you about in the leader. Near the top, you talk about the world order, which continues to be an American-led one. What do you mean by the world order? I think the idea of a world order embodies a lot of different elements. One of them is a set of institutions, many of which were set up after the Second World War and which functioned as forums for both mediating and determining various interactions and conflicts. Some of it was American deterrence. And then the third was then this idea that America embodied a set of values that were both independent of its power and the institutions, that those kind of things enforced and embodied. And world order is a way of dealing with the inherent anarchy of global affairs. And one of the things a world order does is try and set a sense of rules and expectations that enable the world to work better. And you write in the leader that there are tests to American power at the moment. The big one, China, both a threat to this order and to American power. When you were talking about this leader earlier in the week before sitting down and writing it, you made the very good point that there is now an organized campaign to try and discredit America. I mean, internally in China from, you know, Communist Party propagandists, which you'd expect, but also in the global south to paint America as a kind of imperialist power that acts selfishly and is inconsistent and has double standards and, and, and. And that that's something relatively new as well. I don't want to say that China is an alternative to America. I mean, after all, its diplomats haven't turned up in the Middle East to offer any sort of solution. But it is an alternative in that it wants to redefine various fundamental concepts like universal values. Now, what are human rights? Well, I think after the Second World War, we've all got a fairly clear idea of what those sorts of things are. But China wants to challenge it. And this is now a sort of framework of ideas that appeal to the global South because it enables them to escape from what they see as Western interference. One of the other things we talked about earlier in the week, Ed, is whether America can uphold the order which it did so much to create if one of the two parties is isolationist. And we didn't quite manage to resolve that. Where have you got to with your thinking about that? 
I think it's really worrying for a number of reasons. Perhaps the best worked example is already in front of us with Ukraine. I don't think there's a much clearer example of where American support for a country abroad is more beneficial to the United States. I mean, there are lots of sort of principled reasons why you might want to support Ukraine, but there are also very narrow self-interested reasons. The fact that Ukraine is fighting Russia, a threat and an enemy to the United States, it's not putting American lives at risk. And the sums of money involved appear large, but in terms of the Pentagon's budget, they aren't even that large. And there's an important potential demonstration effect to deter Xi Jinping from evading Taiwan. So like, what isn't valuable and attractive about this policy for the United States? And yet the isolationists within the MAGA faction of the Republican Party disregard this and say, this is not in America's interest, it's a bad idea. And if this test, on this test, that's where they come out, I think that's quite a worrying thing. Finally, Ed, it's really hard to talk about American power in the world without talking about Iraq and the invasion 20 years ago and the aftermath of all of that, including the sort of loss of confidence in America. I wonder, though, if what we might be seeing right now is a different sort of American power in the sense that, you know, both in Ukraine, as you said, you know, America's supporting an independent democracy fighting for its life and fighting for freedom without actually putting any of its own soldiers at risk. In Israel, America sent its aircraft carriers. It has sent weapons to support the Israeli government. But its diplomacy, as you said, is focused on trying to minimize the killing in Gaza. And it's trying to use its influence on the government of Israel to persuade it to exercise some restraint. I wonder if what we might be seeing here is a different way of America deploying its power, which in a sense is a chance of a kind of redemption after the Iraq and Afghanistan era. I think that's right, John. If you remember the Cheney doctrine before the US went into Iraq, it was preemptive. The idea was America now had so much power that it had a duty to be preemptive and to destroy enemies before they had a chance to get strong enough to threaten the United States in the way that al-Qaeda had. And that, that extended to, it turned out, Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Preemptive strikes against other countries didn't work. It was a disaster. This is a completely different approach. And Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, has written an essay this week that's very clear that America can't insist on countries doing exactly what it wants. It needs to negotiate. It's altogether much more accommodating. It's much more constructive, more modest, more judicious, more weighted to the problem at hand. It's not going out looking for problems. And I don't know whether it'll work. It's a complex and difficult world in which real threats exist. But I do think it's got a much better chance of working than the very heavy-handed policies of the early 2000s. Charlotte, just picking up from where Ed left off there, I mean, as Kevin Roberts said right at the top of the podcast, the Republican Party makes a big exception for Israel from the general isolationist drift. But it is an exception, really. And one of the consequences of that, I think, is that it's pretty hard for America to sustain the role that it's played in the world post-1945 and since Eisenhower. During that period, there have been two internationalist parties, essentially. The thing is, if you have one party that's internationalist and one party that's isolationist, the problem with that is that the whole American led world order, which Ed was talking about, is sort of predicated on the idea of American constancy. And those alliances that America has formed suddenly look less strong, not because American power is less, but because of American politics, because of American domestic politics, because allies start looking at what's happening in Washington and in American elections and saying, well, can we really count on America to play the role we expect it to normally? And conversely, America's adversaries start testing it and testing its will, at which point the cost of the commitments that America has made around the world go up and up and up because it's easier to make those commitments when they're not actually going to be tested. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there are two things that make America's job in this harder. One is the rise of China. So you're right that American military strength remains unparalleled, but Economically, China's just about matched at this point. I mean, it's a very large and powerful economy. And then the nature of the way it wields that power 
is a direct threat to America's interests. So you have Jake Sullivan talking about a lattice work of cooperation and updating alliances. And I was most struck of all the many quotable little phrases in his essay in Foreign Affairs about how he was arguing that America needed to have a, quote-unquote, better value proposition, which is something that marketers use when they're describing a product. I thought it was kind of apt that he used it because it pointed to a need that the administration really needs to be out selling this as a model, both to American voters and to American allies. And it's hard to do that for the two reasons I articulated. One, which is that you now have China out selling a different model. So on the same day that Biden was in Tel Aviv, there were a little less than two dozen leaders in Beijing for a meeting on the Belt and Road Initiative, China's very large investment vehicle for countries to promote infrastructure investments and other types of investments. And America is trying to counter that specific initiative in various ways. It has a partnership that it's doing with the G7 to try to say that America can support countries economically as well. But it's really hard to sell that American model, that American value proposition, when you have Republicans challenging it from the inside. So I don't really blame America's allies for being anxious watching this unfold. And it does make the job of Jake Sullivan and other internationalists and President Biden himself, as well as future Democrats who may share his views, it makes their job much, much harder. Yeah, the law has been changed now so that a president cannot withdraw from NATO without the consent of a supermajority of the Senate, I think anticipating the chance of a second Trump presidency. But even if a president is limited from withdrawing from his treaty commitments, the fact that he could still rhetorically voice no support for allies, the fact that Trump is already saying that he would resolve the Ukraine war in 24 hours, which presumably means some amount of capitulation, has, I think, given a lot of strength to the Russian position. The challenge internally, I think, matters for exactly those reasons that you laid out. And Idris, what does all this mean in practical terms for the package of aid that President Joe Biden would like to get through Congress? The support for Ukraine, which is packaged together with support for Israel and some support for Taiwan. Yeah, so President Biden has requested that Congress appropriate about $100 billion to pay for uh, dealing with these conflicts all at once. So he's asked for $60 billion for funding for Ukraine, which at the current burn rate wouldn't even get the country to the next election. It would probably last until September. $14 billion in funding for Israel, several billion for allies in the Indo-Pacific, which presumably means Taiwan and another 10 or so billion for the border. The idea being that because Republicans want to support Israel and they want to bulk up border security, that they will go along with providing the Ukraine aid, which they are reluctant to do so. I think that the election of this speaker is going to matter a lot, and the new speaker's actions will be hard to predict. You know, he was a backbencher, and, you know, he has his published views on Ukraine, but we have no idea how he will operate in leadership, whether or not he'll be a pragmatist or whether or not he'll be more of the Freedom Caucus type. And it might be the case that Congress forces the money to run out before even a potential President Trump does. I think the nature of our conversation today points in part to the divergent opinions of the parties, but also it's worth noting that we're having this debate within certain contours, right? So it's been about 20 years since the start of the war in Iraq and about 10 since Obama drew a red line in Syria, which then didn't prompt American action on responding to the use of chemical weapons. And both parties are affected by those experiences. And you have even Biden, he's not arguing for ground troops in Ukraine or ground troops in Israel. This is about a very different kind of intervention. So the scale of the transition in thinking within both parties in a relatively short amount of time is really remarkable. And I think it points to both the turmoil within American politics and just an utterly new global landscape in which American politicians are trying to lead. Well, that's it for this week's episode, though I'm sure we will be returning to American foreign policy again soon. Before I let you guys go, there is, of course, a quiz. And this week's one is about probably the least important form of foreign policy that there is, honorary citizenship. Only eight people have ever been awarded honorary citizenship of the United States. It takes an act of Congress, and it doesn't have any actual benefits, so generally it's not really considered worth it. But who was the first person to become an honorary citizen of the US of A? I'm going to say Churchill. 
Churchill is the right answer. It was Winston Churchill in 1963, the Marquis de Lafayette, who some people think of as the first honorary citizen, actually only became an honorary citizen in 2002, so a little bit after he died. The other particularly famous honorary American is Mother Teresa. Congratulations, Idris. Fast on the draw. Question two. Churchill's mother was American, and he was proud of his American heritage, once telling Eisenhower that because his ancestors had fought in Washington's army, I am myself an English-speaking Union. But in 1953, while still just a British subject, Churchill received another honour, this time in a Scandinavian capital. He's the only prime minister or president to have won this one. What is it? Hmm. The Nobel Prize in Literature. Oh, in literature, interesting. Is again the right answer. Two well for done. two, Idris. Yeah, he won it for his history books and his speeches. There are three presidents who've won Nobel Peace Prizes. Wilson, Teddy Roosevelt, and Obama. I have a quiz question for you guys. Are we done with your quizzes? Go for it. So both of you always refer to this branch of the Republican Party, including in Idris's really good piece this week, as the Berserker Caucus. What is the history of the word berserker? There were the Vikings, right, who would, like, take psychedelics and fight naked. They were particularly fierce warriors, weren't they? But I can't remember if they were Vikings or something else. Is Idris right about that as well? He is indeed right about that as well. They worshipped the Nordic god Odin, who was the one-eyed all-father who sacrificed his eye to see everything that happens in the world. So, there you go. There's no limit to Idris's historical knowledge. All right, well, that really is it for this week. Thank you both. Great, thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Stevie Hertz. James Stickland is our sound engineer. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. Listener.